Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Episode 9. Solomon Kane. Wings in the Night. By Robert E. Howard. Part 2 of 2. Chapter 3. The People in the Shadow. Through colossal, black basaltic corridors of night, Solomon Kane fled for a thousand years, gigantic winged demons, horrific in the utter darkness, swept over him with a rush of great bat-like pinions, and in the blackness he fought with them as a cornered rat fights a vampire bat, while fleshless jaws drooled fearful blasphemies and horrid secrets in his ears, and the skulls of men rolled under his groping feet. Solomon Kane came back suddenly from the land of delirium, and his first sight of sanity was that of a fat, kindly black face bending over him. Kane saw he was in a roomy, clean, and well-ventilated hut, while from a cooking pot bubbling outside wafted savory scents. Kane realized he was ravenously hungry, and he was strangely weak, and the hand he lifted to his bandaged head shook, and its bronze was dimmed. The fat man and another, a tall, gaunt, grim-faced warrior, bent over him. And the fat man said, He is awake, Kuroba, and of sound mind. The gaunt man nodded and called something which was answered from without. What is this place? asked Cain in a language he had learned, akin to the dialect the black had used. How long have I lain here? This is the last village of Buganda. The fat black pressed him back with hands gentle as a woman's. We found you lying beneath the trees on the slopes, badly wounded and senseless. You have raved in delirium for many days. Now eat. A lithe young warrior entered with a wooden bowl full of steaming food, and Cain ate ravenously. He is like a leopard, Kuroba, said the fat man admiringly. Not one in a thousand would have lived with his wounds. I, returned the other, and he slew the Akayana that rent him. Goru. Cain struggled to his elbows. Goru, he cried fiercely, the priest who binds men to stakes for devils to eat. And he strove to rise so that he could strangle the fat man. But his weakness swept over him like a wave. The hut swam dizzily to his eyes and he sank back panting where he soon fell into a sound, natural sleep. Later, he awoke and found a slim young girl named Nyella watching him. She fed him, and feeling much stronger, Cain asked questions, which she answered shyly, but intelligently. This was Boganda, ruled by Kuroba, the chief, and Goru, the priest. None in Boganda had ever seen or heard of a white man before. She counted the days Cain had lain helpless, and he was amazed, but such a battle as he had been through was enough to kill an ordinary man. He wondered that no bones had been broken, but the girl said the branches had broken his fall, and he had landed on the body of the Akeana. He asked for Goru, and the fat priest came to him, bringing Cain's weapons. Some we found with you where you lay, said Goru, some by the body of the Akeana you slew with the weapon, which speaks in fire and smoke. You must be a god. Yet the gods bleed not, and you have just all but died. Who are you? I am no god. Cain answered, 
but a man like yourself, albeit my skin be white. I come from a far land amid the sea. Which land, mind ye, is the fairest and noblest of all lands? My name is Solomon Cain, and I am a landless wanderer. From the lips of a dying man I first heard your name. Yet your face seemeth kindly. A shadow crossed the eyes of the shaman, and he hung his head. Rest and grow strong, O man or God or whatever you be, said he. And in time you will learn of the ancient curse that rests upon this ancient land. And in the days that followed, while Cain recovered and grew strong with the wild beast vitality that was his, Goru and Koroba sat and spoke to him at length, telling him many curious things. Their tribe was not aboriginal here, but had come upon the plateau a hundred and fifty years before, giving it the name of their former home. They had once been a powerful tribe in old Boganda, on a great river far to the south, but tribal wars broke their power, and at last, before a concerted uprising, the whole tribe gave way. And Goru repeated legends of that great flight of a thousand miles through jungle and swampland, harried at every step by cruel foes. At last, hacking their way through a country of ferocious cannibals, they found themselves safe from man's attack, but prisoners in a trap from which neither they nor their descendants could ever escape. They were in the horror country of Akeana, and Goru said his ancestors came to understand the jeering laughter of the man-eaters who had hounded them to the very borders of the plateau. The Bogandi found a fertile country with good water and plenty of game. There were numbers of goats and a species of wild pig that throve here in great abundance. At first, the black people ate these pigs, but later they spared them for a very good reason. The grasslands between plateau and jungle swarmed with antelopes, buffaloes and the like, and there were many lions. Lions also roamed the plateau, but Boganda meant lion slayer in their tongue and it was not many moons before the remnants of the great cats took to the lower levels. But it was not lions they had to fear, as Goru's ancestors soon learned. Finding that the cannibals would not come past the savannas, they rested from their long trek and built two villages, Upper and Lower Boganda. Cain was in Upper Boganda. Cain was in Upper Boganda. He had seen the ruins of the lower village. But soon they found that they had strayed into a country of nightmares, with dripping fangs and talons. They heard the beat of mighty wings at night, and saw horrific shadows cross the stars and loom against the moon. Children began to disappear, and at last a young hunter strayed off into the hills, where night overtook him, and in the gray light of dawn, a mangled, half-devoured corpse fell from the skies into the village street and a whisper of ogreish laughter from high above froze the horrified onlookers. Then, a little later, the full horror of their position burst upon the Bugandi. At first, the winged men were afraid of the black people. They hid themselves and ventured from their caverns, only at night. Then they grew bolder. In the full daylight, a warrior shot one with an arrow, but the fiends had learned they could slay a human and its death scream brought a score of the devils dropping from the skies, who tore the slayer to pieces in full sight of the tribe. The Bogandi then prepared to leave that devil's country, and a hundred warriors went up into the hills to find a pass. 
they found steep walls up which a man must climb laboriously, and they found the cliffs honeycombed with caves where the winged men dwelt. Then was fought the first pitched battle between men and batmen, and it resulted in a crushing victory for the monsters. The bows and spears of the black people proved futile before the swoops of the taloned fiends, and of all that hundred that went up into the hills, not one survived, for the Achaeanas hunted down those that fled and dragged down the last one within bowshot of the upper village. Then it was that the Bogandi, seeing they could not hope to win through the hills, sought to fight their way out again the way they had come, but a great horde of cannibals met them in the grasslands, and in a great battle that lasted nearly all day, hurled them back, broken and defeated. And Goru said while the battle raged, the skies were thronged with hideous shapes, circling above and laughing their fearful mirth to see men die wholesale. So the survivors of those two battles, licking their wounds, bowed to the inevitable with the fatalistic philosophy of the black man. Some 1,500 men, women, and children remained, and they built their huts, tilled the soil, and lived stolidly in the shadow of the nightmare. In those days, there were many of the bird people, and they might have wiped out the Bogandi utterly, had they wished. No one warrior could cope with an Akayana, for he was stronger than a human. He struck as a hawk strikes, and if he missed, his wings carried him out of reach of a counterblow. Cain interrupted to ask why the blacks did not make war on the demons with arrows. But Goru answered that it took a quick and accurate archer to strike an Akayana in midair at all. And so tough were their hides that, unless the arrow struck squarely, it would not penetrate. Cain knew that the blacks were very indifferent bowmen, and that they pointed their shafts with chipped stone, bone, or hammered iron, almost as soft as copper. He thought of Poitiers in a jincourt, and wished grimly for a file of stout English archers, or a rank of musketeers. But Goru said the Akayanas did not seem to wish to destroy the Bogandi utterly. Their chief food consisted of the little pigs which then swarmed the plateau, and young goats. Sometimes they went out on the savannas for antelope, but they distrusted the open country and feared the lions. Nor did they haunt the jungles beyond, for the trees grew too close for the spread of their wings. They kept to the hills and the plateau, and what lay beyond those hills, none in Boganda knew. The Akayanas allowed the black folk to inhabit the plateau, much as men allow wild animals to thrive or stock lakes with fish for their own pleasure. The bat people, said Goru, had a strange and grisly sense of humor, which was tickled by the sufferings of a howling human. Those grim hills had echoed to cries that turned men's hearts to ice. But for many years, Goru said, once the Bogandi learned not to resist their masters, the Akayanas were content to snatch up a baby from time to time, or devour a young girl strayed from the village or a youth whom night caught outside the walls. The bat folk distrusted the village. They circled high above it, but did not venture within. There, the Bogandi were safe until late years. Goru said that the Akayanas were fast dying out. Once there had been hope that the remnants of his race would outlast them. In which event, he said fatalistically, the cannibals would undoubtedly come up from the jungle and put the survivors in the cooking pots. 
Now he doubted if there were more than 150 Akeanas altogether. Cain asked him why did not the warriors then sally forth on a great hunt and destroy the devils utterly. And Goru smiled a bitter smile and repeated his remarks about the prowess of the bat people in battle. Moreover, said he, the whole tribe of Buganda numbered only about 400 souls now, and the bat people were their only protection against the cannibals to the west. Guru said the tribe had thinned more in the past 30 years than in all the years previous. As the numbers of the Akianas dwindled, their hellish savagery increased. They seized more and more of the Bogandi to torture and devour in their grim black caves high up in the hills. And Guru spoke of sudden raids on hunting parties and toilers in the plantain fields and of the nights made ghastly by horrible screams and gibberings from the dark hills, and blood-freezing laughter that was half-human, of dismembered limbs and gory grinning heads flung from the skies to fall in the shuddering village, and of grisly feasts among the stars. Then came drought, Guru said, and a great famine. Many of the springs dried up, and the crops of rice and yams and plantains failed. The news, deer and buffaloes, which had formed the main part of Boganda's meat diet, withdrew to the jungle in quest of water, and the lions, their hunger overcoming their fear of man, ranged into the uplands. Many of the tribe died, and the rest were driven by hunger to eat the pigs, which were the natural prey of the bad people. This angered the Akayanas and thinned the pigs. Famine, Bogandi, and the lions destroyed all the goats and half the pigs. At last, the famine was passed, but the damage was done. Of all the great droves, which once swarmed the plateau, only a remnant was left, and these were wary and hard to catch. The Bogandi had eaten the pigs, so the Akayanas ate the Bogandi. Life became a hell for the black people and the lower village numbering now only some 150 souls, rose in revolt, driven to frenzy by repeated outrages. They turned on their masters. An Akeana, lighting in the very streets to steal a child, was set on and shot to death with arrows. And the people of Lower Boganda drew into their huts and waited for their doom. And in the night, said Guru, it came. The Akeanas had overcome their distrust of the huts. The full flock of them swarmed down from the hills, and Upper Boganda awoke to hear the fearful cataclysm of screams and blasphemies that marked the end of the other village. All night, Guru's people had lain sweating in terror, not daring to move, hearkening to the howling and gibbering that rent the night. At last, these sounds ceased, Guru said, wiping the cold sweat from his brow, but sounds of grisly and obscene, feasting, still haunted the night with demon's mockery. In the early dawn, Guru's people saw the hell flock winging back to their hills, like demons flying back to hell through the dawn, and they flew slowly and heavily, like gorged vultures. Later, the people dared to steal down to the accursed village, and what they found there sent them shrieking away. And to that day, Guru said, No man passed within three bowshots of that silent horror. And Cain nodded in understanding, his cold eyes more somber than ever. For many days after that, Guru said, the people waited in quaking fear 
and finally in desperation of fear, which breeds unspeakable cruelty. The tribe cast lots, and the loser was bound to a stake between the two villages. In hopes the Akawanas would recognize this as a token of submission so that the people of Boganda might escape the fate of their kinsmen. This custom, said Guru, had been borrowed from the cannibals who in old times worshipped the Akayanas and offered a human sacrifice at each moon. But chance had shown them that the Akayana could be killed. So they ceased to worship him. At least that was Guru's deduction. And he explained at much length that no mortal thing is worthy of real adoration, however evil or powerful it may be. His own ancestors had made occasional sacrifices to placate the winged devils. But until lately, it had not been a regular custom. Now it was necessary. The Akayanas expected it, and each moon they chose from their waning numbers a strong young man or a girl whom they bound to the stake. Cain watched Guru's face closely as he spoke of his sorrow for this unspeakable necessity, and the Englishman realized the priest was sincere. Cain shuddered at the thought of a tribe of human beings, thus passing slowly but surely into the maws of a race of monsters. Cain spoke of the wretch he had seen, and Guru nodded, pain in his soft eyes. For a day and a night, he had been hanging there, while the Akayanas glutted their vile torture lust on his quivering, agonized flesh. Thus far, the sacrifices had kept doom from the village. The remaining pigs furnished sustenance for the dwindling Akayanas, together with an occasional baby snatched up, and they were content to have their nameless sport with the single victim each moon. A thought came to Cain. The cannibals never come up into the plateau. Guru shook his head. Safe in their jungle, they never raided past the savannas. But they hunted me to the very foot of the hills. Again, Guru shook his head. There was only one cannibal. They had found his footprints. Evidently, a single warrior, bolder than the rest, had allowed his passion for the chase to overcome his fear of the grisly plateau and had paid the penalty. Cain's teeth came together with a vicious snap which ordinarily took the place of profanity with him. He was stung by the thought of fleeing so long from a single enemy. No wonder that enemy had followed so cautiously, waiting until dark to attack. But, asked Cain, why had the Akayana seized the black man instead of himself? And why had he not been attacked by the Batman who alighted in his tree that night? The cannibal was bleeding, Guru answered. The scent called the Bat Fiend to attack, for they scented raw blood as far as vultures and they were very wary. They had never seen a man like Cain who showed no fear. Surely they had decided to spy on him, take him off guard before they struck. Who were these creatures? Cain asked. Guru shrugged his shoulders. They were there when his ancestors came, who had never heard of them before they saw them. There was no intercourse with the cannibals, so they could learn nothing from them. The Akeanas lived in caves, naked like beasts. They knew nothing of fire and ate only fresh raw meat. But they had a language of a sort and acknowledged a king among them. Many died in the great famine when the stronger ate the weaker. They were vanishing swiftly. Of late years, no females or young had been observed among them. When these males died at last, there would be no more Akayanas. But Boganda, observed Goru, was doomed already, unless... 
he looked strangely and wistfully at Cain, but the Puritan was deep in thought. Among the swarm of native legends he had heard on his wanderings, one now stood out. Long, long ago, an old, old Juju man had told him. Winged devils came flying out of the north and passed over his country, vanishing in the maze of the jungle-haunted south. And the Juju man related an old, old legend concerning these creatures, that once they had abode in myriad numbers far on a great lake of bitter water, many moons to the north, and ages and ages ago, a chieftain and his warriors fought them with bows and arrows and slew many, driving the rest into the south. The name of the chief was Niasuna, and he owned a great war canoe, with many oars driving it swiftly through the bitter water. And now, a cold wind blew suddenly on Solomon Cain, as if from a door opened suddenly on outer gulfs of time and space. For now he realized the truth of that garbled myth, and the truth of an older, grimmer legend. For what was the great, bitter lake, but the Mediterranean Ocean, and who was the chief Niasuna, but the hero Jason, who conquered the harpies and drove them, not alone into the Strophades Isles, but into Africa as well. The old pagan tale was true then, Cain thought dizzily, shrinking aghast from the strange realm of grisly possibilities this opened up. For if this myth of the harpies were a reality, what of the other legends? The Hydra, the Centaurs, the Chimera, Medusa, Pan, and the Satyrs, all those myths of antiquity. Behind them did there lie and lurk nightmare realities with slavering fangs and talons, steeped in shuddersome evil. Africa, the dark continent, land of shadows and horror, of bewitchment and sorcery, into which all evil things had been banished before the growing light of the Western world. Cain came out of his reveries with a start. Guru was tugging gently, and timidly at his sleeve. Save us from the Akayanas, said Guru. If you be not a god, there is the power of a god in you. You bear in your hand the mighty Juju stave, which has in times gone by been the scepter of fallen empires and the staff of mighty priests. And you have weapons which speak death in fire and smoke. For our young men watched and saw you slay. Two Akayanas. We will make you king. God, what you will. More than a moon has passed since you came into Boganda, and the time for the sacrifice is gone by, but the bloody stake stands bare. The Akayana shun the village where you lie. They steal no more babes from us. We have thrown off their yoke, because our trust is in you. Cain clasped his temples with his hands. You know not what you ask, he cried. God knoweth it is in my deepest heart to rid the land of this evil. But I am no god. With my pistols, I can slay a few of the fiends. But I have but a little powder left. Had I great store of powder and ball, and the musket I shattered in the vampire-haunted hills of the dead, then indeed would there be a rare hunting. But even if I slew all these fiends, what of the cannibals? They too will fear you cried old Karoba, while the girl Nyela and the lad Loga, who was to have been the next sacrifice, gazed at him with their souls in their eyes. Cain dropped his chin on his fist and sighed. Yet will I stay here in Boganda all the rest of my life if you think I be protection to the people? 
So Solomon Cain stayed at the village of Boganda of the Shadow. The people were a kindly folk whose natural sprightliness and fun-loving spirits were subdued and saddened by long dwelling in the shadow. But now they had taken new heart by the white man's coming, and it wrenched Cain's heart to note the pathetic trust they placed in him. Now they sang in the plantain fields and danced about the fires and gazed at him with adoring faith in their eyes. But Cain, cursing his own helplessness, knew how futile would be his fancied protection if the winged fiends swept suddenly out of the skies. But he stayed in Boganda. In his dreams, the gulls wheeled above the cliffs of old Devon, carved in the clean, blue, wind-whipped skies. And in the day, the call of the unknown lands beyond Boganda clawed his heart with fierce yearning. But he abode in Boganda and racked his brains for a plan. He sat and gazed for hours at the juju stave, hoping in desperation that black magic would aid him where the white man's mind failed. But Longa's ancient gift gave him no aid. Once he had summoned the slave coast shaman to him across leagues of intervening space. But it was only when confronted with supernatural manifestations that Nanga could come to him. And these harpies were not supernatural. The germ of an idea began to grow at the back of Cain's mind. But he discarded it. It had to do with a great trap. And how could the Akeanas be trapped? The roaring of lions played a grim accompaniment to his brooding meditations. As man dwindled on the plateau, the hunting beasts who feared only the spears of the hunters were beginning to gather. Cain laughed bitterly. It was not lions that might be hunted down and slain singly that he had to deal with. At some little distance from the village stood the great hut of Guru, once a council hall. This hut was full of many strange fetishes, which... Guru said with a helpless wave of his fat hands, were strong magic against evil spirits, but scant protection against winged hellions of gristle and bone and flesh. Chapter 4 The Madness of Solomon Cain woke suddenly from a dreamless sleep. A hideous medley of screams burst horrific in his ears. Outside his hut, people were dying in the night, horribly as cattle die in the shambles. He had slept, as always, with his weapons buckled on him. Now he bounded to the door, and something fell mouthing and slavering at his feet to grasp his knees in a convulsive grip and gibber incoherent pleas. In the faint light of a smoldering fire nearby, Cain in horror recognized the face of the youth Loga, now frightfully torn and drenched in blood, already freezing into a death mask. The night was full of fearful sounds. Inhuman howlings mingled with the whisper of mighty wings, the tearing of thatch, and a ghastly demon laughter. Cain freed himself from the locked dead arms and sprang to the dying fire. He could make out only a confused and vague maze of fleeing forms and darting shapes, the shift and blur of dark wings against the stars. He snatched up a brand and thrust it against the thatch of his hut. And as the flame leaped up and showed him the scene, he stood frozen and aghast. Red, howling doom had fallen on Boganda. Winged monsters raced, screaming through her streets, wheeled above the heads of the fleeing people, or tore apart the hut thatches to get at the gibbering victims within. With a choked cry, the Englishman woke from his trance of horror, 
drew and fired at a darting flame-eyed shadow, which fell at his feet with a shattered skull. And Cain gave tongue to one deep, fierce roar and bounded into the melee, all the berserk fury of his heathen Saxon ancestors bursting into terrible being. Dazed and bewildered by the sudden attack, cowed by long years of submission, the Bogandi were incapable of combined resistance and for the most part died like sheep. Some, maddened by desperation, fought back, but their arrows went wild or glanced from the tough wings, while the devilish agility of the creatures made spear thrust and axe stroke uncertain. Leaping from the ground, they avoided the blows of their victims and sweeping down upon their shoulders, dashed them to earth, where Fang and Talon did their crimson work. Cain saw old Kuroba, gaunt and bloodstained, at bay against a hut wall with his foot on the neck of a monster who had not been quick enough. The grim-faced old chief wielded a two-handed axe in great sweeping blows that for the moment held back the screeching onset of half a dozen of the devils. Cain was leaping to his aid when a low, pitiful whimper checked him. The girl, Nyella, writhed weakly, prone in the bloody dust, while on her back a vulture-like thing crouched and tore. Her dulling eyes sought the face of the Englishman in anguished appeal. Cain ripped out a bitter oath and fired point-blank. The winged devil pitched backward with an abhorrent screeching and a wild flutter of dying wings, and Cain bent to the dying girl, who whimpered and kissed his hands with uncertain lips as he cradled her head in his arms, her eyes set. Cain laid the body gently down, looking for Kuroba. He saw only a huddled cluster of grisly shapes that sucked and tore at something between them, and Cain went mad. With a scream that cut through the inferno, he bounded up, slaying even as he rose. Even in the act of lunging up from bent knee, he drew and thrust, transfixing a vulture-like throat, then whipping out his rapier as the thing floundered and twitched in its death struggles. The raging Puritan charged forward, seeking new victims. On all sides of him, the people of Boganda were dying hideously. They fought futilely or they fled, and the demons coursed them down as a hawk courses a hare. They ran into the huts, and the fiends rent the thatch or burst the door, and what took place in those huts was mercifully hidden from Cain's eyes. And to the frantic white man's horror-distorted brain, it seemed that he alone was responsible. The black folk had trusted him to save them. They had withheld the sacrifice and defied their grim masters, and now they were paying the horrible penalty, and he was unable to save them. In the agony-dimmed eyes turned toward him, Cain quaffed the black dregs of the bitter cup. It was not anger or the vindictiveness of fear. It was hurt and a stunned reproach. He was their god, and he had failed them. Now he ravened through the massacre, and the fiends avoided him, turning to the easy black victims. But Cain was not to be denied. In a red haze that was not of the burning hut, he saw a culminating horror. A harpy gripped a writhing naked thing that had been a woman, and the wolfish fangs gorged deep. As Cain sprang, thrusting, the Batman dropped his yammering, mowing prey and soared aloft. But Cain dropped his rapier, and with the bound of a blood-mad panther, 
caught the demon's throat and locked his iron legs about its lower body. Again, he found himself battling midair, but this time only above the roofs of the huts. Terror had entered the cold brain of the harpy. He did not fight to hold and slay. He wished only to be rid of this silent, clinging thing that stabbed so savagely for his life. He floundered wildly, screaming abhorrently and thrashing with his wings. Then, as Cain's dirk bit deeper, dipped suddenly sidewise and fell headlong. The thatch of a hut broke their fall, and Cain and the dying harpy crashed through to land on a writhing mass on the hut floor. In the lurid flickering of the burning hut outside, that vaguely lighted the hut into which he had fallen, Cain saw a deed of brain-shaking horror being enacted. Red, dripping fangs in a yawning gash of a mouth, and a crimson travesty of a human form that still writhed with agonized life. Then, in the maze of madness that held him, his steel fingers closed on the fiend's throat in a grip that no tearing of talons or hammering of wings could loosen until he felt the horrid life flow out from under his fingers and the bony neck hung broken. And still, outside the red madness of slaughter continued. Cain bounded up, his hand closing blindly on the haft of some weapon. And as he leaped from the hut, a harpy soared from under his very feet. It was an axe that Cain had snatched up, and he dealt a stroke that spattered the demon's brains like water. He sprang forward, stumbling over bodies and parts of bodies, blood streaming from a dozen wounds, and then halted, baffled, and screaming with rage. The bat people were taking to the air. No longer would they face this white-skinned madman, who in his insanity was more terrible than they, but they went not alone into the upper regions. In their lustful talons, they bore writhing, screaming forms, and Cain, raging to and fro with his dripping axe, found himself alone in a corpse-choked village. He threw back his head to shriek his hate at the fiends above him, and he felt warm. Thick drops fall into his face, while the shadowy skies were filled with screams of agony and the laughter of monsters. And Cain's last vestige of reason snapped as the sounds of that ghastly feast in the skies filled the night and the blood that rained from the stars fell into his face. He gibbered to and fro, screaming chaotic blasphemies. And was he not a symbol of man, staggering among the tooth-marked bones and severed grinning heads of humans, brandishing a futile axe and screaming incoherent hate at the grisly-winged shapes of night that make him their prey? Chuckling in demonic triumph above him and dripping into his mad eyes, the pitiful blood of their human victims. Chapter 5 The White-Skinned Conqueror A shuddering, white-faced dawn crept over the Black Hills to shiver above the red shambles that had been the village of Boganda. The huts stood intact, except for the one which had sunk to smoldering coals. But the thatches of many were torn. Dismembered bones, half or wholly stripped of flesh, lay in the streets, and some were splintered as though they had been dropped from a great height. It was a realm of the dead, where was but one sign of life. Solomon Cain leaned on his blood-clotted axe and gazed upon the scene with dull, mad eyes. He was grimed and clotted with half-dried blood from long gashes on chest, face, and shoulders. 
but he paid no heed to his hurts. The people of Boganda had not died alone. Seventeen harpies lay among the bones. Six of these Cain had slain. The rest had fallen before the frantic dying desperation of the black people, but it was poor toll to take in return. Of the 400-odd people of Upper Boganda, not one had lived to see the dawn, and the harpies were gone, back to their caves in the Black Hills, gorged to repletion. With slow, mechanical steps, Cain went about gathering up his weapons. He found his sword, dirk, pistols, and the juju stave. He left the main village and went up the slope to the great hut of Guru, and there he halted, stung by a new horror. The ghastly humor of the harpies had prompted a delicious jest. Above the hut door stared the severed head of Guru. The fat cheeks were shrunken, the lips lolled in an aspect of horrified idiocy, and the eyes stared like a hurt child. And in those dead eyes, Cain saw wonder and reproach. Cain looked at the shambles that had been Boganda, and he looked at the death mask of Guru, and he lifted his clenched fists above his head, and with glaring eyes raised and writhing lips flecked with froth, he cursed the sky and the earth and the spheres above and below. He cursed the cold stars, the blazing sun, the mocking moon and the whisper of the wind. He cursed all fates and destinies, all that he had loved or hated, the silent cities beneath the seas, the past ages and the future eons. In one soul shaking burst of blasphemy, he cursed the gods and devils who make mankind their sport, and he cursed man who lives blindly on and blindly offers his back to the iron-hoofed feet of his gods. Then as breath failed, he halted, panting. From the lower reaches sounded the deep roaring of a lion, and into the eyes of Solomon Cain came a crafty gleam. He stood long, as one frozen, and out of his madness grew a desperate plan, and he silently recanted his blasphemy. For if the brazen-hoofed gods made man for their sport and plaything, they also gave him a brain that holds craft and cruelty greater than any other living thing. There you shall bide, said Solomon Cain to the head of Guru. The sun will wither you and the cold dews of night will shrivel you. But I will keep the kites from you and your eyes shall see the fall of your slayers. I, I could not save the people of Boganda, but by the god of my race. I can avenge them. Man is the sport and sustenance of titanic beings of night and horror, whose giant wings hover ever above him. But even evil things may come to an end. And watch ye, Guru. In the days that followed, Cain labored mightily, beginning with the first gray light of dawn and toiling on past sunset, into the white moonlight, till he fell and slept the sleep of utter exhaustion. He snatched food as he worked, and he gave his wounds absolutely no heed, scarcely being aware that they healed of themselves. He went down into the lower levels and cut bamboo, great stacks of long, tough stalks. He cut thick branches of trees and tough vines to serve as ropes. And with this material, he reinforced the walls and roof of Guru's hut. He set the bamboos deep in the earth, hard against the wall, and interwove and twined them, binding them fast with the vines that were pliant and tough as cords. The long branches he made fast along the thatch, binding them close together. When he had finished, 
an elephant could scarcely have burst through the walls. The lions had come into the plateau in great quantities, and the herds of little pigs dwindled fast. Those the lions spared, Cain slew and tossed to the jackals. This racked Cain's heart, for he was a kindly man, and this wholesale slaughter, even of pigs who would fall prey to hunting beasts anyhow, grieved him. But it was part of his plan of vengeance, and he steeled his heart. The days stretched into weeks. Cain toiled by day and by night, and between his stints, he talked to the shriveled, mummied head of Guru, whose eyes, strangely enough, did not change in the blaze of the sun or the haunt of the moon, but retained their lifelike expression. When the memory of those lunacy-haunted days had become only a vague nightmare, Cain wondered if, as it had seemed to him, Guru's dried lips had moved in answer, speaking strange and mysterious things. Cain saw the Akeanas wheeling against the sky at a distance, but they did not come near. Even when he slept in the great hut, pistols at hand, they feared his power to deal death with smoke and thunder. At first, he noted that they flew sluggishly, gorged with the flesh they'd eaten on that red night, and the bodies they had borne to their caves. But as the weeks passed, they appeared leaner and leaner and ranged far afield in search of food. And Cain laughed, deeply and madly. This plan of his would never have worked before, but now there were no humans to fill the bellies of the harpy folk, and there were no more pigs. In all the plateau, there were no creatures for the bat people to eat. Why they did not range east of the hills, Cain thought he knew. That must be a region of thick jungle, like the country to the west. He saw them fly into the grassland for antelopes, and he saw the lions take toll of them. After all, the Akayanas were weak beings among the hunters, strong enough only to slay pigs and deer. And humans... At last they began to soar close to him at night, and he saw their greedy eyes glaring at him through the gloom. He judged the time was ripe. Huge buffaloes, too big and ferocious for the bat people to slay, had strayed up into the plateau to ravage the deserted fields of the dead black people. Cain cut one of these out of the herd and drove him, with shouts and volleys of stones, to the hut of Guru. It was a tedious, dangerous task and time and again Cain barely escaped the surly bull's sudden charges, but persevered and at last shot the beast before the hut. A strong west wind was blowing, and Cain flung handfuls of blood into the air for the scent to waft to the harpies in the hills. He cut the bull to pieces and carried its quarters into the hut, then managed to drag the huge trunk itself inside. Then he retired into the thick trees nearby and waited. He had not long to wait. The morning air filled suddenly with the beat of many wings, and a hideous flock alighted before the hut of Guru. All of the beasts, or men, seemed to be there, and Cain gazed in wonder at the tall, strange creatures, so like to humanity, and yet so unlike, the veritable demons of priestly legend. They folded their wings like cloaks about them as they walked upright, and they talked to one another in a strident, crackling voice that had nothing of the human in it. No, these things were not men, Cain decided. They were the materialization of some ghastly jest of nature. Some travesty of the world's infancy when creation was an experiment. Perhaps they were the offspring of a forbidden and obscene mating of man and beast. 
More likely, they were a freakish offshoot on the branch of evolution, for Cain had long ago dimly sensed a truth in the heretical theories of the ancient philosophers, that man is but a higher beast. And if nature made many strange beasts in the past ages, why should she not have experimented with monstrous forms of mankind? Surely man, as Cain knew him, was not the first of his breed to walk the earth, nor yet to be the last. Now the harpies hesitated with their natural distrust for a building, and some soared to the roof and tore at the thatch. But Cain had builded well. They returned to earth and at last, driven beyond endurance by the smell of raw blood and the sight of the flesh within, one of them ventured inside. In an instant, all were crowded into the great hut, tearing ravenously at the meat. And when the last one was within, Cain reached out a hand and jerked a long vine, which tripped the catch that held the door he had built. It fell with a crash, and the bar he had fashioned dropped into place. That door would hold against the charge of a wild bull. Cain came from his covert and scanned the sky. Some 140 harpies had entered the hut. He saw no more winging through the skies, and believed it safe to suppose he had the whole flock trapped. Then, with a cruel, brooding smile, Cain struck flint and steel to a pile of dead leaves next to the wall. Within sounded an uneasy mumbling as the creatures realized that they were prisoners. A thin wisp of smoke curled upward and a flicker of red followed it. The whole heap burst into flame and the dry bamboo caught. A few moments later, the whole side of the wall was ablaze. The fiends inside scented the smoke and grew restless. Cain heard them cackling wildly and clawing at the walls. He grinned savagely, bleakly and without mirth. Now a veer of the wind drove the flames around the wall and up over the thatch. With a roar, the whole hut caught and leaped into flame. From within sounded a fearful pandemonium. Cain heard bodies crash against the walls, which shook to the impact but held. The horrid screams were music to his soul and brandishing his arms. He answered them with screams of fearful, soul-shaking laughter. The cataclysm of horror rose unbearably, paling the tumult of the flames. Then it dwindled to a medley of strangled gibbering and gasps as the flames ate in and the smoke thickened. An intolerable scent of burning flesh pervaded the atmosphere. And had there been room in Cain's brain for aught else than insane triumph, he would have shuddered to realize that the scent was of that nauseating and indescribable odor that only human flesh emits when burning. From the thick cloud of smoke, Cain saw a mowing, gibbering thing emerge through the shredding roof and flap slowly and agonizingly upward on fearfully burned wings. Calmly he aimed and fired, and the scorched and blinded thing tumbled back into the flaming mass just as the walls crashed in. To Cain, it seemed that Guru's crumbling face, vanishing in the smoke, split suddenly in a wide grin, and a sudden shout of exultant human laughter mingled eerily in the roar of the flames. But the smoke and an insane brain play queer tricks. Cain stood with the juju stave in one hand and the smoking pistol in the other above the smoldering ruins that hid forever from the sight of man the last of those terrible, semi-human monsters whom another white-skinned hero had banished from Europe in an unknown age. Cain stood, an unconscious statue of triumph, 
the ancient empires fall, the dark-skinned peoples fade, and even the demons of antiquity gasp their last, but overall stands the Aryan barbarian, white-skinned, cold-eyed, dominant, the supreme fighting man of the earth, whether he be clad in wolfhide and horned helmet or boots and doublet, whether he bear in his hand battle axe or rapier, whether he be called Dorian, Saxon, or Englishman, whether his name be Jason, Hengist, or Solomon Cain, Cain stood and the smoke curled upward into the morning sky. The roaring of foraging lions shook the plateau, and slowly, like light breaking through mists, sanity returned to him. The light of God's morning enters even into dark and lonesome lands, said Solomon Cain somberly. Evil rules in the wastelands of the earth, but even evil may come to an end. Dawn follows midnight, and even in this lost land, the shadows shrink. Stranger thy ways, O God of my people, and who am I to question thy wisdom? My feet have fallen in evil ways, but thou hast brought me forth, scatheless, and hast made me a scourge for the powers of evil. Over the souls of men spread the condor wings of colossal monsters, and all manner of evil things prey upon the heart and soul and body of man. Yet it may be in some far day the shadows shall fade, and the prince of darkness be chained forever in his hell. Until then, mankind can but stand up stoutly to the monsters in his own heart, and without, and with the aid of God he may yet triumph. And Solomon Cain looked up into the silent hills and felt the silent call of the hills and the unguessed distances beyond. And Solomon Cain shifted his belt, took his staff firmly in his hand, and turned his face eastward. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 